Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks from Farnham U3A History Group. In this talk, Joe Huddleston tells us about the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Part B. Uh, so we've got to roughly to the 1880s, and we now effectively have no parliament at all and never will have again. We've got a, a, a bureaucracy. Mr. Hinn talking to a Prime Minister, some civil servants and some ministers, and that's it. You know, the government never works again as a democracy. He, by the way, I've been, re- I've been reminded, was a very likeable person. He's just totally out of his depth. He was a workaholic, but, you know, totally got a bunch of mess around his feet that no one could have made sense of. So I, I can laugh from here, but he probably had a pretty rotten life, really. Coming up to 1890s, there's a Christian social party. They were anti-liberal, they were Catholic, they were anti-Semitic. What a surprise. The head of government, he's now a count, Count Tauf. He was described as a straw metternich. Nice little local joke. Uh, tried to give Czech provinces autonomy along ethnic lines. He, he tried. And it was rejected by the younger Czech followers who knew that they could get more and desperately needed more just to keep the police. How the place hung together for you know, 1867 to 1917, as I say, 50 years of being together as an empire, I just cannot grasp. There must have been explosions all over the place, but none of them quite destructive enough. The emperor's now 60. He's got no interest at this point, no hope of making any useful political change at all. He's just worked himself to a standstill, done his level best, got nowhere, and finally at age 60 resigned to the fact that nothing's going to improve. Might as well look through the window. 1893 to 1897, two successive governments resigned. Guess what they resigned over? Ethnic conflicts. It happened to be the Slovenians fighting to have Slovenian schools. What a surprise that if you speak Slovenian, you want a Slovenian school textbook. What a surprise. And the Czechs wanting to use their own language again. They could use it in Prague University, but not much more broadly than that. And two governments fell. The Austrian parliament never worked properly again after this date. So 1897, 1897 to 1914, there was no Austrian parliament. There was a Habsburg prime minister, a few decent civil servants, a foreign minister, and a few others, and that was it. It was sort of 10 to 20 people doing their best, with no hope of getting a democratic uh, vote on anything, or, or sort of folk support. There was another survey in 1895. They come down again. There aren't many surveys in this area. They're not as, uh, not as addicted to numbers as we are in, in Britain. 4,000 Magyar landowners owned 33% of the usable agricultural land in Hungary. That meant one and a half million peasants owned less than 6%. And that's going to make your ethnic minorities feel very cheerful, isn't it? Feudal conditions and loathing it. And Vienna, finally sick to death of the Jews who had been banned from the professions, Jews being clever and grabbing all the artistic and cultural leaderships, they appointed a fiercely anti-Semitic mayor whose name I've suppressed. And Vienna is now described by everybody who can write as the cradle of anti-Semitism in Europe. And Hitler was born and grew up in this atmosphere, uh, looking ahead. That's, that's where he began. 
Budapest opened its first metro in 1896. The Hungarians are long stupid. It was the first in the world after London. I bet you didn't know that. I certainly didn't, not before I read it. Mahler is appointed director of the Vienna State Opera. That's pretty amazing. He's a bohemian Jew. We've just got a anti-Semitic mayor, and he's still good enough to get head by the Viennese Wiener Staatsoper. What a talent. What a bloke. Now, another gentleman you may have heard of, Theodor Herzog. He invented the word Zionism, saying Jews should have a homeland of their own. He didn't know where it would be. All he knew was it wasn't going to be Israel, because you only get Israel if you're good enough, if you've been redeemed enough. And he knew his Jewish people were not up to that sort of standard. So he never, he never thought of Israel. But he did think that the Jews needed a home of their own. He actually thought that... Um, Jews were a genetic thing, you know, a genetic race. They're not, of course, there's no Jewish gene. Jews are just people whose mother sent them to the synagogue, put, put quickly. That's, that's all they are in, in legal jargon. Anyway, Theodor Herzl and Zionism, remember him, 1897. Czech was granted equivalence with German in the administration of Bohemian land. They're a turn up for the book. 1898, a secessionist movement, an artistic movement, under Gustav Klimt. You know Klimt? You seen his pictures? Yes. Another Jew, very, very bright boy, inventive, creative. The hell with the rules, I'm going to do it this way, and it's lovely. Uh, he was at, and his secessionist movement, with others, was at the peak of Viennese art. His Nuda Veritas, I don't know whether you've seen his Nuda Veritas picture. It's said to be an allegory for the racial tsunami that, that was Vienna. Now, despite repeated warnings about anti-monarchy assassins all over the place, the Empress, who was having a bad time because her fella was a workaholic, went to Switzerland yet again and got herself done to death by an anti-monarchist. So our friendly old lad, totally confused about everything going on around him, he's now 68 and a widower. He's not going to pull up any oak trees from now on, is he? He's just going to maintain his... If you were 68 and a widower and you had that mess around your feet, you wouldn't do a lot. You, you wouldn't wriggle a small finger. And that's roughly what he did. Up until 1900, the Austrian parliament had to deal with about um, 30 different political parties, which I haven't listed and will not name. And it just descended into rabid personal abuse and ink throwing. And the, the, gov the parliament was forever being closed by the police dragging warfaring parties out of the building, literally dragging politicians out of the building because they couldn't agree on anything. They were just busy stumping each other on the nose or rubbishing each other's clothes with ink pots. Nothing, nothing like our own dear Whitehall. <laughs> Hugo von Hofmannsthal, some of you have heard of. First class writer. If you've read any Hugo von Hofmannsthal, you should. I've read some. He started the Vienna, the Young Vienna Movement. And again, like one of the previous art movements I mentioned, their main motivation was that the uh, rule of law, the government, was a dead code, bunch of absolutely useless rules hanging around your neck. And if you were going to live at all, you'd better find your life inside art. And they said, let's do that. And let's concentrate on our, our innermost sort of folky feelings. To heck with government. It's never going to happen. Let's just come home, concentrate on what is beautiful around us, including the fact that we're by and large English and speak English and Remember Shakespeare and Milton and all that stuff. Let's do that. That's what Hugo von Hofmannsthal and his group did. You can see they're, they're escaping from a, a hopeless situation. The Croats formed a party of rights. And guess what? Not nowhere. 
1900 was the actual count by somebody. The Archduke Franz Ferdinand, who was going to be the heir, 270,000 animals he'd shot. Thought of little else, apparently. You know, I'm, not, I'm not stupid, I can kill things. Make me governor. Uh, Austrian Jews in Vienna were about 10% of the population, and they were totally dominant in the banking industry, in law, in medicine, in journalism, and in music, and in all the visual arts. Clever people escaped uh, the lousy restrictions placed upon them by life by going into their jobs, going into their work, taking their soul to work, uh, which Jews often had to do just, just to survive. And of course, they're bright people, and they just made it worse for themselves. By owning all of Vienna's cultural leadership, they got themselves more and more disliked. Uh, and as I said before, Vienna has to be labelled the... Uh, the start of European anti-Semitism in, in modern times. Emperor tried pouring money into railways and ports and things to quieten people down. Didn't work. Slovenes, Serbs and Croats still uh, completely alienated from Vienna, wanting to do their own thing. 34% of Austrian imports went to Hungary and 72% of Hungarian imports went to Austria. The place has no natural port and it's, um, or, or outgoing railways. And it's surrounded by mountains and rivers and stuff. So internal trading can be done, but external trading, they're never going to learn about uh, making forged iron from the British or making uh, steam cars from the Germans. It's never going to happen because they can't get, they've nothing to trade. They can't get there. It's too difficult. So you can see they're, they're a bit stuck commercially as, and financially as well as in political and government terms. Pretty pathetic, really. 1902 is an important date. Well, it is if you're me. I've a couple of psychology degrees. Forced to do years psychiatry. I remember the professor saying to us all at the end, uh, about 20 years, I know you didn't want to do psychiatry. I know you hated it. If you remember just one thing, remember this. Doesn't matter where you are, somebody will say to you, but of course my family was very strange. And what you have to remember is all families are very strange. <laughs> They're the weirdest things on the face of the earth. <laughs> if you think your family's funny, it's probably correct. <laughs> anyway, he's an important lad, our Sigmund. Uh, worth, a, worth a minute. At the risk of never finishing. He's worth a minute's bystanding. He set up the world's first psychoanalytic society. You can't say he was the first doctor that converted to mental health as a speciality. He wasn't. There were a number of Frenchmen, a number of Germans, a number of Brits who did that a bit early. But he was the first to create a, a centre for mental health, a clinic specialising in mental health. He was certainly the first guy to do that. And he was certainly the first guy to go in for the talking therapies. <coughs> Nobody else had thought of that. He wasn't widely experienced. He, he didn't see um, all the shot Boscon doctors who needed a padded cell. He only saw rich middle-class Viennese who were worried about their sex lives. So his, his scan of the population was not the greatest. So his theories don't really stand the test of time. Uh, words like ego, id, superego, you can forget. But in there is a kernel entitled, by and large, people are born with something like fairness. If you remember your children this high, one of the first things they shouted in real anger was, it's not fair. You know, there's something in the animal which has got a, a, a moral lead. And he, he said that. He said, I can, I can base the talking therapy on the fact you are genuinely trying to get something right. You're trying to do an honest job in some family social terms. So we... We can base the talking therapy on that. And so obviously he thought childhood behaviour, childhood experiences uh, had a lot to do with adult behaviour, which they do. 
he was also the first to say, I mean, he talked about dreams, he wrote a book on dreams, which is pretty much discredited. Best neurophysiol theory at the minute is that dreams are about chucking out yesterday's rubbish. They're not about anything serious to you. They're not something you want to compact and remember. They're about throwing junk away, usually offensive junk, or dirty or miserable or ruinous or something. You know, you fail at your job again, you'd like to dream about it just to get shot of it. So in, in that sense, he was wrong. But one thing he did say, and he was the first to say it, and it is totally true, is that our decisions are based on a whole range of things, most of it not conscious. So to make this thing totally personal, if you ask me why I'm standing here telling you about Austro-Hungary, I can tell you part of the story, a graffito saying, March Duke recovers World War I mistake. And another part of the story I can tell you, uh, I thought it was worth putting a jacket on because it's part of my MOD serious professional career, so I did want to do a t-shirt. And I don't mind speaking, because I've been trained at your expense, thank you for opening your wallets, to speak to anybody about anything. Uh, it's one of my little known skills. I know that much, but why I'm standing here giving you this lecture, I have no idea. <laughs> why am I not making jam roly-poly? You know, answer, answer on the back of a postcard. And Freud was the first to say that. He was the first to say that in uh, very clear language. You come out with a decision, and it's nothing to do with the words you mouth, and it's nothing to do with the logic you think you follow, but you've got a decision which fits you. And if you look at it again in a month, or two months, or three months, you'll see the decision was based on something else you hadn't realised at the time. And it's all unconscious, and it never will be conscious, because you spent the first five-ish, seven-ish years of your life putting little subroutines in your brain so that you can forget them. You know, if someone hits my knee, I'm my leg. That's something I've taught myself to do unconsciously. You know, if that, if that foot falls off, I'll do that. It's, it's all in little subroutines in the head. They're not conscious. I can't, can't do anything. can't bring them to consciousness. Uh, I can move my little finger. Anybody tell me how I'm moving my little finger? Can you move your little finger? Right, you can do it. Tell me how you've done it. That's <laughs> not fair. <laughs> Point made, I think. <laughs> Emperor had to rule that the joint army would continue. The Hungarians wanted their army to be independent, and they wanted the command language of Magyar. And the emperor, who's now 69 and a widower, and fed up like nobody else, because he's worked his socks off and got nowhere, he said, no, 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 we're going to have an army that's commanded in German, because that will work, nothing else will work. Serbia had a radical party formed, and that was wanting the unification of all Serbs, several of which are, you remember from your map, we're in Bosnia and Herzegovina, we're in Croatia, so we're in Romania, if you're in the south of Hungary, Montenegro, or something. Serbia's trying to grab all those people together. It's like trying to say to all Welshmen, come back home to Cardiff, all is forgiven. It ain't going to happen, but it's ugly. It makes a mess while you're doing the shouting. Prime Minister resigned. It's <laughs> sick of conflicts over education and language. Couldn't do any more, just gave up. So we now have a 69-year-old widowed emperor, a few civil servants, and a few ministers in place trying to govern this unbelievable mess. I mean, how that hung together for 50 years, I cannot imagine. Full of explosions at every point. Plenty of plans, 1906 I've got to, uh, including by the Archduke, um, to turn Hungary into just a crown land, you know, sort of subdue it. Kick, kick them all to death, especially the Serbs. Didn't happen, because the Emperor said, no, we're not having any warfare. I had a war with France, and I lost Italy. 
I had a war with Prussia and I lost the union with Germany. War with Russia would kill us. I'm blowed if I'm going to have a war just so that you can tell the Slavs in Hungary uh, that they're not wanted. Go away, think again, go and shoot something. Social Democrat Party in 1907 had 87 seats out of 300. It was Marxist in outlook, but the Marxists in fact got nowhere in uh, Austro-Hungary because you could never get enough people to agree on anything. You couldn't find a fissionable quantity of, of persons to whom you could sell the idea of Marxism, which, which isn't a very serious idea. It just it boils down to, uh, if you're the boss of a company, you should treat your workers decently. That's all Marx's Das Kapital says. It's about that thick, and I've read it twice in English, but couldn't bear the German <laughs> He's quite a long mouthful, but work as the world unite is simple. <laughs> Fewer Germans and Poles, more Czechs, Italians, Ruthenians, Slovenians return to the Austrian parliament. That only made things worse. It only means you've got a bigger mix of ethnic groups trying to agree on street lighting and telephone charges. It's not, it's not going to work. Increasing number of conflicts and social arguments. 1907 to 1914, Trotsky lived in Vienna. He thought the Austrian Social Democrats were a load of wimps. Um, quite unlike the Marxist movement in Germany. And I've explained why. You couldn't get a fissionable quantity of people together to agree on anything, let alone Marxism. So Trotsky was bored. 1908, somebody else did a survey again. Britain had 17% of world trade. Germany had 12% of world trade. France had 9%. And Austro-Hungarian Empire had 3%. They're not rich. They're not doing well. Not in industrial terms. In agrarian terms, they're doing pretty well. And they're not bad at steel making, but in total industry, no. Bosnia-Herzegovina, the little field in Greenland, that was now formally annexed. It had just been given to them by the European powers at this point, but it was now legally annexed and made a, a permanent fixture to Austro-Hungary. And that was to make the empire's border with Turkey and the Slavs beyond dispute. So it's a defence mechanism. It is not to give a better life to the Bosnia Herzegovinians. It's to make sure that we in Austro-Hungary have a firmer border and keep the Turks out of the way. Sad, really. The politics of necessity. And again, in 1908, Mr Hitler, that famous uh, Austrian house painter, he was rejected for the second and final time by the Vienna Academy, which is a very high standard place. He wasn't the only person to believe. But he strongly believed that a Jewish professor was responsible. So that did his view of the Jews no good at all. 1909, Austria issued an ultimatum to Serbia to demobilise its pro-Bosnian forces and secret societies and start behaving like a good neighbour. Uh, so already, Austria's trying to tell Serbia, you're a nuisance, get off my back or I'll hit you. Two million Jews now, um, 1900s. 5% of the total Austro-Hungarian population. But they're 18% of the Army Navy Officer Corps. They're 54% of business owners. And they're the leaders of most of Austro-Hungary's cultural assets. You can't go to a theatre or hear a piece of music or look at a picture without a Jewish family being in charge. We all know they're worth it. But as far as the Austrians are concerned, these were the garbage of the universe. Prague, by now, had a Czech bank, a Czech university, and a Czech theatre. Only 6% of its population was Germans. In other words, the Germans had got some sort of message and drifted south for the winter. 
leaving the checks much to their own devices, but not with self-control, not with their own government. Two Czech ironworks produced over half the empire's output. That must have hurt. The people chucking us out and getting their own way are doing half the uh, important work. Not the farming, not the textiles, the clever new stuff that England's brilliant at. The Czechs have got it. Hmm. That, that can't have been nice. It's like being told that Southern Ireland has got all the uh, software writing and chip making skills. Whitehall wouldn't not like that. Croats headed a new movement um, for unity amongst the Southern Slavs. Franz Joseph sort of suppressed it, but he no longer thought of making anything clean and giving national government ethnic, along ethnic lines. No. If you look at your map again, there's a little, little bit dangling into Italy still. 750,000 Italians in there, and Italian unification is uh, quite recent. Mm. And of course, these people are busting to join. They want to go to Italy, please. And the emperor has to say, eh, sorry, status quo. Total collapse of Turkish rule. Total collapse of Turkish rule. All the historians agree. 1910. And rapid growth of the Slav independence movement. That includes the Serbs. 1910, somebody else did another survey. In all of Austro-Hungary, 77% of them were Catholic. 9% were Protestant, mainly Lutheran. 9% were Eastern Orthodox. 4% were Jewish, practicing Jewish, that is. And 1% Muslim. They're leftovers from the Ottoman Empire in places like Serbia, Bosnia, Herzegovina. There was a funeral in 1910 of the anti-Semitic mayor of Vienna. His funeral was attended by thousands, and the newspapers picked out Hitler, who was described as being in a very emotional state indeed. In other words, Hitler had lost a leader. It's already apparent that Hitler's views are hard and fast. He's not going to do anything like that. Bukovina, which is far north of the empire, six nationalities, which I'll not bother to name because most of us won't have heard of them, were given individual autonomy inside the larger government. And that was described across Europe as the best <coughs> constitutional arrangement ever made by the Viennese government. The best ever made. We're already in 1910. It's been in place since 1867. We've only four years to run for the outbreak of war. Meanwhile, in Hungary, only 10% of Croatians had the vote. Croatian policies were never financed. The Hungarians made sure of that. And the Ruthenians were kept firmly under the thumb. They got nothing, not even a newspaper themselves. One plotter, Zerajik by name, a Serb, what a surprise, shot himself for failure. He loosed five shots at the visiting Serbian governor. Because the Serbian governor wasn't nationalistic enough. He wasn't doing anything about the Serbs in Austro-Hungary. And he loosed those shots from the very river bridge where the Archduke would be shot four years later. But you'd, you'd think somebody would have remembered that and said to the Archduke, excuse me, if you're going there, you'd better go in a, let's say, an army lorry with a bit of tin on the outside, not an open car. And worse yet, 1910, an impoverished student, a Serb, Gavrilo Princip, name to remember. He stole flowers to put on Zerajik's grave. Again, you would have thought someone would have noticed that. 30 parties in eight major languages in the Vienna Parliament in 1911. Total chaos. No reform got anywhere. Uh, what happens in 1213? Anything important to our Russia? Oh, well, Turkey was at last driven out of Europe, totally driven out, by Bulgaria, Serbia, Montenegro. 
And the U European diplomatic joke was that Austria had now found a place for itself. It could now be the sick man of Europe. I <laughs> suppose that was funny at the time. If you were sitting in Westminster, that was probably quite a giggle, but if you were sitting in Vienna, protests all over the place when Hungary appointed one of their counts as governor instead of uh, a Croatian, you should have got it. Street slogans all over the place, uh, branded the Archduke Ferdinand as an enemy to the unification of the Serbs. So another warning light that someone should have noticed. Street posters. Various small groups gathered to plot the assassination of the emperor himself. Didn't actually put any of it in direction. Archduke Franz Ferdinand was now sort of growing up from animal shooting and he was starting a little court of his own, constantly interfering, trying to reduce the power of Hungary. Most observers home and abroad said that this empire was in fact two countries, one of them having two emperors, not one emperor. Again, a sort of sick joke, but too close to the truth to be laughable. Broadly, everybody, everybody, all the diplomats of all the nations had given up any idea of reforming the Austrian parliament or making it effective. The emperor and a few VIPs made such decisions as they were, and they were all about peacekeeping. They were all about non-autonomy, about keeping the federal thing together, about keeping one army, about keeping one, one budget control, nothing else. 27,000 miles of railway now, not for the benefit of the population, but so the emperor could send his troops anywhere quickly. A bit sad, that. But it happens to be more railway than any other country except Germany. Serious tensions between Serbia and Austria, 1913. State of emergency and martial law in Bosnia-Herzegovina, just to keep the Serbs quiet. The Archduke, bless his cotton socks, wrote a 10,000-word accession programme. He didn't forget to include a note of his profound hatred of the Hungarians. That's going to be useful, isn't it? When, when you're emperor, that's going to be really nice. You've told half your population you loathe and detest them. That's really going to help. Suicide at the head of the army intelligence. He'd not done a good job until now, as far as I can see. He's found to be both a traitor and a homosexual. Either one would have done. I don't know why he had to gild the gingerbread, but any of those would have killed him. The Croatian vice president himself warned the Archduke not to visit Bosnia-Herzegovina, which is where Sarajevo, as you see from the map little green blob. He was going there to cheer up the forgotten uh, Austrian army units and the vice president was telling him there were too many Serb groups to count who wanted his death. More of them than I can put on a piece of paper. Serb groups actually plotting to kill you. Don't go. Meanwhile the Austrian chief of staff, his view was that we should go to war with Serbia and he urged that on 25 separate occasions in the year 1913. The Austrian chief of staff, the military and the navy. Okay, 1914. Since its formation in 1967, Vienna's had 20 prime ministers, Budapest's had 17, there have been five chancellors in Germany and about four prime ministers in Britain. In other words, the place is just totally turbulent. It's obvious to any outsider that it's, it's, it's forever a boil. Austria is visibly poorer than its German ally. It's about a half to one-fifth the per capita uh, consumption. Countless Serbs and Croats protesting every day for a South Slav state independent of Austria. Vienna's Neue Freie Presse, its best newspaper, said any real Balkan league would be a Russian dagger at Austria's heart. 
Gavril Opinci, him again, walked to Sarajevo, walked from, from Belgrade, Belgrade with a large bag of smuggled guns and bombs to share with his fellow students, his fellow Serb students. You would have thought somebody would have spotted that. Bunch of Serb students collecting together, machinating against the emperor, collecting guns and bombs and plotting how to use them. You would have thought the, the worshipful company of eavesdroppers would have noticed. No, he wanted to be a Serbian martyr, apparently. He, he, Gavrilo Pinci, he knew Serbia wasn't going to get anywhere with the Habsburg uh, rule. He just thought the best he could do was murder the damned Archduke and be a martyr. That, that was his best hope. So, 28th of June, the Archduke is shot. We all know that. The, uh, the scribbling in the messenger's lobby was wrong. He did not recover. He was deaded. He was in an open car. His driver had got him on the wrong route. He'd got no security personnel, whatever, either with him or in front of him or behind him. And he was going home for a visit to hospital. You can't get much dafter than that. There were six con conspirators in all, none of them over 24, and they all failed on the outboard route. They tried to get locations to take a shot at this uh, detested and useless, and they couldn't get a shot in. But on the way back, Gabriel Pinci, by accident, found himself with a clear view and deaded the guy. The Serbian chief of intelligence was later fingered, not by Austrians, but by outside press, as probably looking after the Black Hand Gang, which is one of five well-known Serbian gangs, uh, who probably got these uh, students together and aimed them at the Habsburg dynasty. And surprise, surprise, the Archduke had done nothing for nobody. He wasn't even remotely popular. And Vienna couldn't give a fig. Nothing happened in the numbers of people going to dance or eating out or going to the art galleries. or Nothing happened. Not a single reaction. It's like, you know, a plasticine model in the 57th bedroom has been crushed by your smallest child. And the next door neighbor says, oh, you've got five bedrooms. I'm just going to the shop. Is that bad? Vienna's bunkered VIPs, not many of them, there's only 10 or so now speaking to the emperor at all, on any serious note. Uh, they agonised over how ineffective they'd been and what on earth you could possibly do with Serbia. Because this guy and his mates were from Serbia, so it must matter, must it? So they believed Serbia led the plot on, on no real evidence. Um, they didn't know about the head of Serbian intelligence of one of five gangs. They didn't know about that possible link. Uh, they just knew that these guys were Serbs and they'd had a lot of trouble with Serbs, so it must be Serbia. It's got to be Serbia. And they thought the only thing we can do is attack Serbia. The Emperor felt that the only way he could hold the place together was to show a large military victory against anybody. And Serbia was convenient. The German rulers were vaguely in favour of anybody thrashing the Slavs. And they had an agreement with Austria to, to help it should it be attacked. But the Germans didn't provoke the Austrians into doing anything. It's, it's Vienna. It's 10 or 15 people at most in Vienna thinking they can get away with this. Totally thoughtless of the fact that Russia would leap to the defence of a Slav nation that you invented on the instant. You know, it's, it's, it's like us taking on... Uh, I'll think of something really stupid. Trying to get Calais back. I think the French army and the French police wouldn't get in our way. It's berserk. You've got to be off your little head. So there we are. 
Not really much else to say. Parliament, of course, ought to be in place. So there's no logical discussion of whether it was Serb individuals or Serbia as a nation. Let's just go and invade. And you know the treaty tie-ups. We've got the Triple Entente of Britain, France and Russia. We've got the Triple Alliance of Austria, Germany and Italy. And we've got Britain with a secret uh, recipe to defend Belgium in the hope that it's not a transit route for Germany to France. So war is now just about guaranteed. How sad. The views expressed by the speaker are not necessarily the same as those held by the team at the Mr. T Podcast Studio. This podcast is produced by the Mr. T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A Group.